Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, takeaways from the Association of the Old Crows annual conference uh, last week in Washington, D.C. with AOC Chairman Dr. Bill Connolly of Mercury Systems and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners uh, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first joining us is Sam Bendett. Uh, one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, as well as its unmanned systems, who is with the Center for Naval Analyses, a part of the Crack Russia team there. Uh, and he is also a Center for a New American Security Fellow. Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Welcome back. Always great to be on. Thank you. Uh, in, indeed. Uh, but before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. Uh, Sam, thanks very much for joining us. Um, obviously, the unmanned element of this war is uh, constantly uh, changing, and Ukraine uh, conducted a, um, a major swarming attack uh, on the Russian Navy's Black Sea Fleet base uh, at Sevastopol. Um, walk us through what the Ukrainians did, uh, how they did it, and, and why actually what they did is pretty impressive. Ukraine used nine unmanned aerial vehicles and apparently seven unmanned surface vehicles to um, overwhelm Russian air defenses and conduct a strike deep inside the Sevastopol Black Sea Fleet port area. Uh, this is important because this is the area where Russian ships are located, their military vessels, uh, some of their civilian vessels. It is a major naval base. And so any type of strike on a major base of this significance uh, would be important. Uh, the fact that Ukrainians were able to penetrate uh, the, um, the port area and actually damage probably two ships, uh, we're still awaiting for the final confirmation, including the head frigate of the Russian Navy and possibly a minesweeper and maybe even another vessel is absolutely important. This was not done by a surface Navy. This was not done by regular surface naval combatants. Most of the damage was done by very small very hard to see unmanned surface vessels. One of those vessels actually washed ashore in Crimea several weeks ago. So it's not like this must have been a complete shocker or surprise to the Russians. And uh, Russians probably uh, conducted their own sort of uh, autopsy of that uh, USV unmanned surface vessel to understand how, how, it is, um, how it operates. But again, what is essential here is that um, while the Russian defenses were busy trying to target uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, um, several USVs were able to sneak through. And this is the real strength and the real importance of these vessels. Uh, at night, uh, even in regular conditions, they're difficult to sight, they're difficult to identify. And when they approach target, um, when they're within striking distance, it's often difficult to stop these. We've seen some of that used before. Uh, Iranian allies in Yemen, the Houthis, used um, a boat, a manned boat, packed with explosives to target a uh, Saudi naval vessel uh, some time ago. But we haven't seen Ukraine, or Russia for that matter, use unmanned surface vessels in actual military capacity. 
And we tend to think of Russia, and certainly my team and myself included, tend to think of Russia as a country with more advanced unmanned surface uh, underwater capabilities. Certainly Russians have been working on multiple projects. But it isn't Russia that's actually using the new tactics and concepts. It is, in fact, Ukraine, a country that's supposed to be on the defensive, that's using these new new technologies in combination. Uh, So lots of questions, of course. Um, To what extent the uh, UAVs and USVs actually coordinated uh, on their own? This was probably a human-in-the-loop attack, meaning uh, human operators managed the the trajectory of these uh, vehicles, their flight patterns. Um, we know from videos available that some of the USVs actually change direction multiple times, wants to actually avoid a barge with humans on it, which was not a military target. So this was probably beyond the line of sight, but still human controlled attack. And of course, this presents a dilemma to not just Russian Navy, but also multiple other militaries around the world, how to better defend against these technologies, which seem to be um, many magnitudes cheaper to use than the actual defenses used by the Russians to strike these UAVs and USVs. They used helicopters, they used uh, heavy guns from ships. So, um, and, and apparently even um, that was not enough to prevent an actual successful strike by at least two of these USVs. Um, This is uh, an extraordinary attack in part because so many Russian ships have been damaged. The Moskva uh, obviously was uh, sunk. uh, And of course, we've had a couple of alligator class uh, landing ships also damaged uh, in the course of of this war. And as you said, the Houthis were sort of first to make, uh, you know, operationalize this capability, interestingly uh, enough, uh, even if there was a Ukrainian success in this case. Um, The Russians have used this as a pretext to cancel uh, the grain deal that everybody thought the Russians were going to cancel anyway, uh, in part because it was you know, helping Russia and their position in the war is actually worse now than it was in July. What's the Russian reaction been and what should we expect from this mass mobilization, uh, uh, Sam, uh, with Shoigu last week uh, announcing the uh, Russian defense minister mobilization is complete uh, and we're uh, rapidly training people and going to be sending them to the front lines? So uh, there are multiple statements in the Russian state media immediately after the attack. First of all, uh, Russia did announce that it's pulling out of the grain deal um, and um, the fate of the grain corridor, the humanitarian corridor that allows the export of grain from Ukraine to Turkey and other countries is uh, is under question right now. Uh, Russian uh, military and the Russian state media blamed the attack on um, on the West. They said that it was the UK that helped manage this strike, that the USVs and other vehicles were probably, were probably launched from Odessa, or the Ukrainians used the grain corridor, the humanitarian corridor, um, where civilian vessels are supposed to go basically unchecked to launch those USVs and UAVs at some point while uh, the ships were close to uh, the Russian port and, uh, and Russian Crimea at this point. So, um, they immediately kind of put the blame on the West. They immediately said that West facilitated this attack. Russian telegram channels were uh, full of uh, notifications that in fact, these USVs must have come from one of the American uh, naval companies, one of the private contractors working on unmanned right. naval systems. And so uh, they immediately said that this was not just a Ukrainian strike, this was a Western strike, a Western supported strike and a Western-coordinated attack. Um, they immediately pointed out that a humanitarian corridor 
which uh, they uh, claim is supposed to be sort of free of politics and policies, was used uh, in such a strike. So they're kind of laying the groundwork for um, media narrative that uh, Ukraine and um, and their allies are in fact violating uh, multiple agreements that Russia has signed. Russia also called this a terrorist attack, not a military attack, which I think is interesting in and of itself because there is a difference between a terrorist strike on um, on an installation versus a military strike, which is part of war. And of course, for Ukraine, uh, Russian naval ships are part of the larger uh, military effort, and um, they are part of the larger war that they're waging against uh, Russia. As far as mobilization goes, uh, Shoigu did report to Putin that most of the mobilization goals have been met. But we're still getting plenty of evidence that while the numbers may still be there, the quality of the mobilized force still has a lot to be desired. And people still post videos in Russia of really old rusty equipment that they're getting. People still complain that there's not enough basic equipment for the mobilized forces. Russian soldiers and their uh, families complain about the lack of adequate amount of training for this force. Uh, People complain about the lack of payments and money that they were promised as a mobilized force. So there's still a lot of issues. And again, Russia can force people into military camps and announce that they have the numbers to send to Ukraine. But the quality of this force uh, is really what is going to determine whether or not Russia would be able to hold off the uh, Ukrainian advance, which is uh, grinding on them in the Kherson. And there are very uh, tough battles, which are also happening in uh, Ukraine's east as well. Sam, uh, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very, very much. Uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week for an update. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Margo. And joining us now is Dr. Bill Connolly, the Chief Technology Officer at Mercury Systems, who also serves as the Chairman of the Association of Old Crows. Uh, The association, which had its annual conference uh, in Washington, D.C. last week, is the voice and the advocate for all aspects of uh, the electromagnetic uh, spectrum, including electronic, cyber, and information uh, operations and warfare. Uh, The term Old Crows uh, was a nickname for the community that pioneered electronic warfare during World War II, and the association was founded in 1960. Uh, Bill, thanks so very much for joining us. Always great having you on the program. Yeah, Vago, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be with you and share to a broader group some of the some of the things we discussed last week and where the world's going next. Uh, indeed. I mean, it, it really is a terrific show at a time uh, when the critical importance of electromagnetic cyber and information warfare is being increasingly uh, recognized. But it's also a difficult show because so much of the most important stuff that, uh, whether programmatic or technological, are top secret or increasingly being classified as secret. What are the key takeaways of the show that you can discuss? Yeah, no. So so obviously, I mean, there's there's plenty of things at the classified level to always discuss, but it, I would actually say it's critical that we are able to have those open and unclassified conversations, um, A, because it contributes to, you know, where, where are we going? We have to be able to articulate it simply. B, it allows a much larger number of stakeholders to get engaged. And C, as we look at the world that we live in, you know, how are we actually using all of these capabilities to help drive deterrence? Um, And if we do that right, we obviously have to do that at some level in the open. And so with that in mind, uh, the specifics though that you asked is, you know, kind of, hey, what what did we talk about last week? What did we learn? Uh, The first thing that I would point out is I think it was a really exciting time and a very well-timed show, a very well-timed event. Um, Attendance was up substantially over past years. And so obviously through COVID, uh, you know, there's a variety of challenges that we've all had to work through over the last couple of years, but it's always good to see that excitement. 
I think that one of the reasons we actually see the excitement ticking up is be, you know, regardless, if you're in government or if you're in industry, all of us are basically building a five-year plan, right? Either a five-year spending plan or a five-year revenue plan that we are sharing with our, uh, with our stakeholders. And so with that in mind, when you look at where we used to be talking about, you know, some sort of potential conflict in the East or South China Sea was out there in 2030 somewhere. And then suddenly the conversation accelerated to 2027 and then 2025. And the reality is 2025 is inside of all of our five-year planning windows. And so with that in mind, we are highly unlikely that we're going to deliver, you know, develop to build in quantity, field, and get operators trained on how to use a new aircraft, a new class of ship, or, you know, some new platform inside of just a couple of years. But there is a lot that we can do with our advanced electronic systems, continuously upgrading those, leveraging open standards, getting software and software updates deployed quickly onto them that we actually can change the way that the world will be shaped over the next couple of years. And so I think in that sense, again, it's very timely that we as a community got together. And then the final two that I wanna go ahead and highlight, the first one is around the supply chain side. And it is fascinating when you look at the $52 billion going in through the CHIPS Act and the impact that that's gonna have. But when you actually look at just how big the global semiconductor market is, that 52 billion will make an important but will not dramatically transform and suddenly, you know, result in the United States going from 14% of global production to 80%, right? It's going to be 14% plus a couple. And so how do we adapt to that? How do we respond to that? How do we go ahead and leverage that to the best of our ability? And then lastly, it's always worth touching on, but kind of the broadly the governance discussion. And so how does Congress interact with, uh, with the Department of Defense and inside of the Department of Defense? What are the diverse governing bodies that are all using the electromagnetic spectrum to make sure we're making the optimal decisions in the capabilities so we can ensure that when the chips are down, they work in the way that's expected and they accomplish those mission outcomes that we need them to. Very good uh, reference. Uh, but by the way, Bill, uh, when the chips are down, but I'm bummed, uh, you're, <laughs> you're here, you're here all week. Um, uh, you know, there were some amazing capabilities and technologies uh, that are under development. Uh, and I want to get to those uh, in a minute. But Russia's war on Ukraine has been labeled, uh, you know, Dr. Eric Schmidt, uh, the former Alphabet chairman, was at the Atlantic Future Forum aboard HMS Queen Elizabeth. And he said that this is the first broadband war. Um, what are, and, and obviously the electromagnetic spectrum is playing an absolutely critical element of this. Cyber is a critical element of it. Information operations are, are critical. From, from your perspective, what are the biggest lessons learned uh, from Russia's war on Ukraine? Yep. Yep. And Ukraine's counteroffensive. Yeah. So, so Vago, this, this could actually be worth an entire hour-long conversation. But the, the analogy that I actually like to draw is I believe that today the situation we're in is roughly equivalent to 1904 to 1905 during the so-called Russo-Japanese War. Um, and so the American Civil War was the major conflict preceding it. And uh, World War I, obviously, the major conflict after it, both of which were peer-on-peer. But the tactics and the techniques were not well understood in the new weapon systems introduced between the Civil War and World War I. And so I think in many ways, we have to learn everything that we possibly can that is happening now in 2022 and whatever the future may hold to ensure that we don't end up with, you know, candidly, um, war plans that we went into World War I with that did not execute in the way that anybody expected and resulted in the trench warfare and, you know, substantial amounts of stalemate until the technology caught up to actually allow things to kind of broadly change. And so your question is, I think, actually really sage around the, the nature of how broadband this conflict is. And I think there's, there's two separate parts of that. 
The first one is what is there around the broadband sharing of, you know, tactical information from the battlefield and the ability to get actionable intelligence into a battlefield's commander using something as simple, you know, as a UAV, a drone uh, that is commercially available and at this point, you know, costs under a couple thousand dollars. And so as a radio controlled uh, helicopter pilot, I'm really good at crashing radio controlled helicopters. I very briefly (laughs) fly them. But the reality is you get really cool footage. Uh, You know, when you can go ahead and you can fly a drone and you can see everything that's happening around you, but the military ramifications of that in terms of cost exchange ratio, but also just the ability to close a kill chain is, is really, really important. The other thing that I think is really interesting that we learned uh, over the last, you know, eight, nine months is around command and control and the ability to leverage commercial assets to help make that command and control occur. Obviously with Starlink, there's a lot out there in the media right now. Um, but Dave, uh, Dave Tremper, who was on stage with us on two different sessions last week, previously referred to the software update associated with Starlink and the speed with which they were able to do that is, quote, eye-watering. Um, and the reality is, right, that, that ability to turn a software update to mitigate the effects of jamming, what that really is, though, is that is the ability of a force to maintain command and control over all of their troops to maintain situational awareness so they can make good decisions. At the nation state, the strategic level, the implications of that technology, I, I don't think can be understated in any way, shape or form. But to your point, this is, this is truly a broadband-based uh, uh, base capability. And so wrapped up in that, the speed at which you can adapt is really, really critical. Um, and I would offer, you know, in, in Ukraine today, you know, just as someone watching the news and not receiving daily intelligence updates in any way, shape or form, the way that things played out in proximity to Kiev in comparison to how things right now are playing out in eastern Ukraine, it's a very different conflict with a very different type of, uh, of fighting that is occurring, in large part because of terrain and how the technology is being used and the lessons learned in those first couple of months from, uh, from both sides. And so that ability to adapt, but the belief that a platform, a payload, a capability that is there at the beginning of the conflict is going to endure for years is not valid. Um, right. At the tail end of World War II, there's phenomenal operations analysis uh, hunting German U-boats in the Bay of Biscay. The first ever, you know, LS and X-band surface search radars, they all get mitigated in the timescale of months by the Germans who understand that something has changed. And if we live in the, the information age and things are happening quickly, we have to be able to go ahead and deal with that. And lastly, I think to your point on the broadband conflict side is at this point, information from a battlefield can be globally shared near instantaneously in a way that is peer-to-peer. Um, I would argue Vietnam was probably the first time that there was that global sharing, but it was filtered through the lens of the media right. and what they were going to go ahead and you know put on the, put on the front page of uh, whichever you know, publication. But at this point, through social media, that ability to globally share is truly different in terms of how that generates support for someone when a different country decides to invade their nation. We, we've got about a minute uh, left, and I really want to have you back on, Bill, to have a more sort of fulsome, deeper conversation on it. And I thought it was fascinating. The the idea of advantage uh, is going to be measured right in, in days, uh, if not hours, eventually in minutes. And uh, guys uh, at the Royal Australian Air Force's Project Jericho program studied this a couple of years ago in a fascinating paper, which I think was in 2019. How do we need to start adapting ourselves to incorporate these lessons and to move at the scale and the speed of relevance, because that is the central question that a lot of folks are asking is, we're just moving too slow, given our lives are governed by programs of record. 
Yep. So, so the speed at which we get things done is obviously critical. And I, I think for most of our careers, many of us have heard from our, our leadership, you know, I'm data driven. And I recently actually had a, uh, had a boss that when he first came in, he said, I'm not data driven, I'm information driven. And I think it's a really important distinction. How do we take data? How do we automate that process by which we're able to distill it into information, which then we as a human are able to go ahead and use it? And so again, building off of the show, you know, panel sessions around cognitive electronic warfare, unmanned, the so-called uncrew system, how we integrate things faster with stitches to bring those outcomes. I think it's a really exciting time for how we bring that speed in a way that allows us to be prepared. But we have to develop those necessary standards up front and get comfortable with that flow so we therefore can use it during a conflict if ever called upon. You said that there's going to be a gap, right? The chips is very, very important, but there's going to be a gap. What do we do in this gap to uh, make sure that we're addressing our strategic needs? So two, two separate parts to that, right? The first one is what do, we, what do we have to do today to make sure that we are delivering credible systems that allow us to meet our national objectives of deterring any conflicts to the best of our ability to do so? And then I think there's a secondary question, which is how do we make sure that we have a globally resilient and robust supply chain that meets globally that need to create stability that I think all of us want as we look five, and, you know, five to 10 years into the future and making sure we do both of those right and that we're walking and chewing gum at the same time, because sometimes they may feel different. But in my opinion, at the end of the day, it's one objective. Bill, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. And I'm going to take you up on that offer to bring you back on and have a more fulsome conversation on this stuff. Uh, thanks so very much again. And hope you uh, and uh, yours have a very happy Halloween. Thank you, Vago. Great as always being with you. And joining us now is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, that is now celebrating its 15th year uh, in operation for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, uh, welcome back uh, on. It's always a pleasure uh, and happy 15th birthday. And happy Halloween too, Vago. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, and we'll get to the Halloween portion of the discussion in a minute. Uh, speaking about treats, uh, there were lots of earnings, uh, most of it very, very positive. Uh, we talked a little bit about this on yesterday's uh, business roundtable. Uh, what are your takeaways? Well, look, you know, you had the, the bulk of the large U.S. contractors report last week. Uh, Lockheed Martin reported the week before. When I do, Baga, you know, go through and look at how the individual defense segments performed. And, you know, clearly there's some companies like General Dynamics or Boeing where they've got a large commercial business, but I'm really focusing on the defense, the defense parts of their portfolio. And, you know, and then you have companies like Booz Allen or Khaki. Um, Khaki will have some civil business. And in any event, the takeaways to me were you saw better organic uh, sales growth comparisons than you did in the first two quarters of 2022. I don't think that should be a surprise because it was kind of flagged by the uh, increase we saw in investment and operations outlays, as reported by the U.S. Treasury um, for the September quarter. But the other part that I think was interesting was the operating margin comparisons were down for the vast majority of these companies. There really wasn't anything that I would flag as a major departure from trend for the sector. Uh, you know, a lot of these are fairly minor um, degradations in operating margin, you know, but just kind of stepping back and look at the entire sector, you could look at it as a glass is half full, which would suggest that they are uh, handling uh, the cost pressures from from wage growth, from materials, 
relatively well. Uh, and the other part, I suppose, is, you know, that in and of itself says to me, you know, because there really wasn't that much change in operating margin guidance <clears throat> for the companies that offered guidance, certainly for this year, and then kind of talked around it in general terms for next year, <clears throat> that industry is coping pretty well with these pressures. Um, there were a couple of, of exceptions, obviously, the Boeing uh, defense space and security charges um, are, are still distressing on one level and fascinating on another level. Right. Um, you know, that that is just, that's an outlier for the group. There was a goodwill write-off <clears throat> at L3 Harris um, that was kind of curious because, you know, one of the factors that was cited were changes in precision weapons programs. And I think that's generally seen as a, an attractive part of the market. I don't think management explained that particularly well during the call, but, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't something, you know, their, their bookings were up. And so I think people came away from these calls, you know, relatively content with the results. Uh, I don't think expectations were really high going into this, into this season in any event. Um, do you think that uh, buybacks, I mean, we talked about this a little bit on yesterday's uh, show, obviously earnings were up because companies are throwing off vast amounts of cash. I mean, the president got into it with the ExxonMobil uh, CEO, Darren Woods, uh, for making too much money. Um, and, and some have said that it's a little unseemly for you know the industry on the one hand to be looking to the government for redress on inflation and the higher cost of, of labor, um, you know, the difficulties associated with investing in infrastructure while at the same time generating you know, as much free cash, cash flow and as much you know, and, and focusing on buybacks uh, you know, to sort of get rid of the money for, for lack of a better word. Do you think that this becomes a political, a political issue at some point? Well, you know, the, buy, the buybacks are really just a byproduct of cash flow generation, you know, and really, you can, you can argue, should companies be more creative in some of the things they're doing? I know Lockheed had increased the amount of money that they're allocating to their investment portfolio. Um, you know, I'd still ask, have you really, have you gone through all the things, <clears throat> the other options not just mergers and acquisition, you know, that's kind of an obvious one. And, and you know, the, the policies laid down by the Biden administration make that virtually impossible for large deals to be right. considered by the, by the major primes. But, you know, have they really <clears throat> spent what they need to spend from capital, from a capital standpoint? You know, if we really are going to enter a super cycle for defense this decade, um, has have the companies really modernized their facilities to expand capacity in anticipation of that, even though that might impact some of their their uh, their overhead rates, the burden rates that they have to apply to their contracts. And I'd say, um, so you know, it's not optimal. You know, I, I've heard grumbling um, by people in the Department of Defense about about the buybacks and and what that really means. It it is, I think, a broader issue it came up in the senator warren warren letter that was sent to uh, uh bill a plan at the department of defense about uh you know maybe offsetting some of these inflationary pressures you know but oh boy the contractor's just going to turn around and use the money to buy back stock um you know so so it is it is a it's not a red light i think it's just kind of one of those flashing yellow lights um, and I, I think anybody who sees the magnitude of some of these buybacks, just you, you have to ask every time you see these, is that really the optimal use? You know, have, have these managements really checked all the boxes? And there are questions to ask. Um, well, look, I mean, obviously, every corporation's fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders is to make money. They're making money. Uh, and if you foreclose M&A opportunities, 
you're going to have to do something with the money. Even though we can agree that there might be more imaginative things to do, they do attract the street and that in combination of dividends attracts folks. Um, we have a limited amount of time uh, left. Um, next week is uh, there's a national election, uh, if I've been paying attention correctly on Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, and you have a non-consensus uh, take uh, on the outcomes and the permutations. Walk us through your non-consensus take, which is increasingly, I think, becoming a consensus take in and of itself, but yeah. uh, take it away. And, um, you know, so I think the the popular conception is, oh, you know, Republicans are going to be strong on defense, Democrats are going to be weak on defense. And, and my view is, you know, if, if you play through these scenarios where the Republicans gain a majority, not just in the House, but they sweep and take the Senate too, you know, is that necessarily bullish for defense? Uh, you know, Senator Wicker, who was likely to be the chairman of that Senate Armed Services Committee, has talked about a, you know, trillion dollar plus defense budget. The problem with all that is you still have divided control of the government. And um, I can't see, you know, if you're going to make those big de defense increases, you're going to have to make cuts somewhere else. Um, and, you know, an agenda that's talking about cutting taxes, uh, again, you know, maybe going after Social Security and Medicare, which traditionally have been third rail issues. Um, some of the non-defense discretionary programs, I think even though a lot of Republicans voted against them, um, have traction and things like infrastructure. You know, you look at even the electric battery plants that are going into some of these very deep red states that are going to create good jobs. That's another point. So I'm just skeptical that you're going to create this whole new level of headroom for higher defense spending that's radically above uh, the Biden administration plan. And the other thing I think we're going to get back into is, you know, it's not going to be an exact rerun of 2011, but if you've got a, a Republican Congress that is set on, you know, going after federal debt and reining in federal spending, it, it creates the potential for certainly a protracted standoff over the FY23 budget, which we don't have appropriations for. And it reintroduces, um, you know, which I think Michael Hirsch on your Friday call also um, called out, you know, the, the debt ceiling being used as a cudgel to try and cut spending. And that that is a very dangerous, very sharp weapon um, that, you know, you, you kind of like to see not just left in the drawer, but taken out of the kitchen. <laughs> especially on halloween uh right yeah. you, you don't want to you don't want to have you don't want to be dealing with that um talk to us a little bit about the week ahead uh another another busy week walk us through well i think you know there, there are a number of events um this coming week uh you know there was an event today uh with the u.s special representative for iran at carnegie endowment um, there is an event on Friday that George Mason University and the Defense Acquisition University is holding uh, on kind of these broad questions about defense acquisition and budget reform uh, that, that's going to be pretty interesting. And they're, they're the usual, you know, smaller set of, of think tank events. Uh, I'm sure there's going to continue to be uh, events kind of talking about the implications of the midterm election. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we still have earnings reports from some of the services companies. Huntington Ingalls is going to be reporting. There is an event that Atlanta Council is holding on electrification of military ground vehicles that I think is going to be kind of interesting and topical. So, as always, these are going to be busy weeks with, with a lot going on. Thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure and hope 
you guys have a very happy Halloween up there in sunny Connecticut. We have a full bowl of candy. The question is how many trick-or-treaters actually show up. If you see any members of Congress, report yeah, it to the authorities. We will. Thanks. <laughs> or Thanks, or wayward, wayward CEOs. Thanks very much, Byron. Thanks, Bago.